Welcome back, and long last, to Say Who Say Pod. This is episode 61. He's Danny O'Neill. I'm Christian Capel. It is not Thursday, Danny. No, it's like 61 and a half. It's episode 61 <laughs> and a half. Yeah. Um, to, to give you a peek behind the, the Say Who Say Potty and curtain, uh, we recorded our episode on Wednesday morning, as we usually do, um, by, in fact, taking a literal pledge to not discuss <laughs> Pac-12 media rights negotiations. So, um, you know, people had kind of gotten sick of it. George Klyovkov said what he said at Media Day. There was still no deal. It was coming in the, quote, near future, so on and so forth. So we thought, you know what? We're not going to talk about it until it's done, whatever. Plenty plenty of, of Media Day football topics to discuss with the Huskies. And then uh, later that afternoon, the Colorado Board of Regents got together for a meeting that was quickly reported to be about uh, discussing their move to the Big 12. They scheduled a vote for the next day, which, if you're familiar with how boards of regents work, that means it's basically a done deal. The vote's just a formality. And indeed, it was a formality. Colorado is leaving the Pac-12 for the Big 12, effective uh, in the summer of 2024. And then there were nine, Danny. So I've got, I've got a series of observations. The first is that George Klyavkov should quit. You wrote that. He, sh- he should quit. Um, it's impossible to take anything he says seriously at all going forward. For six months, he's provided repeated assurances of trust us, it's going okay. Via the, via the presidents mostly, but right. But I mean, the conference released a statement in February, but look, Everything that he has orchestrated, he's responsible for the conference. And the conference's messaging has been, don't read into the fact that there's no deal yet. Everything's going okay. We're going to be fine. It's clear that that was a bluff. Everything is not fine. And Colorado looked at the option that was there with the Pac-12 and the one that's on the table with the Big 12 and decided the Big 12 is better. It's impossible to take him seriously. I don't blame him for what has happened. He very well may have done the very best he could, and I do think he negotiated the best deal he could for the Pac-12, but it's not fine. No, Colorado just just opted out. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is I feel like an absolute sucker. Everything about what was happening and the delay in the announcement screamed they don't have a big enough deal yet to keep the 10 remaining members together. And I talked myself into... I'll take them at their word and say that I, I shouldn't. I shouldn't conclude that. Clearly, I sh- that that was the correct conclusion. So I feel like a dope. I think there is some sense that they haven't actually seen the final numbers, though, right? Like because Colorado's chancellor came out and said in the Denver Post, I think just last week, that they their preference was to stay in the Pac-12 and that they were really looking forward to seeing numbers at this upcoming Pac-12 board meeting. And then there were other multiple reports saying. There were never going to be numbers presented at that board meeting. Oh, he's he's setting the stage for them to leave because now he can say, well, I, thought I wanted to see numbers and there weren't any, even though the consensus seems to be that there, there never were going to be. But like, if they had a great deal coming and if there was widespread confidence in George Klyovkov to deliver that deal, would, would Colorado's eyes have wandered the way that they did? No, if they, they wouldn't. They wouldn't leave money on the table. And 
I've covered enough contract negotiations in pro sports that I don't buy any of this. We haven't seen numbers. We haven't. They know the general ballpark of what they're talking about. Like the the haven't seen a formal contract offer. Doesn't you? They know. They know what's being discussed. Maybe they haven't seen a final contract offer, but this idea that well, we we haven't seen the final numbers yet. They know the neighborhood of what it is, and it wasn't enough to convince them to come to the Pac-12. And I also saw there's some talk about the better TV windows and more linear coverage, and that might be true. If Colorado was going to get $10 million more with the Pac-12 than they were going to get in the Big 12, they wouldn't care about the windows or the TV coverage. The deal's, the deal's not great. Like it's not, it's not a better deal, certainly not a better deal than what the Big 12 is offering. It could be that it's... Um... In theory, in a universe where it is comparable, it could be that a school like Colorado determined, well, even if we re-up with the Pac-12 at the same, you know, similar ballpark, which again, we're we're theorizing here, it could well be that it's not in that ballpark. Um, it could well be that they just thought, but gosh, if we sign with the Pac-12, we're just doing this again in five years. If we go to the Big 12 and help them get to 14, potentially 16 teams... Now there's a little more stability and, you know, I think there's probably a lot of people, a lot of constituents in the Colorado world who feel like they belong in the big 12 anyway. I agree with all of what you just said. The PAC 12 also just got dumped by the ugliest member of the conference. Oh, no question. There's no question. (laughs) They were just like, yeah, it's been nice here on the beach, but we're going back with the plain folks. Like we're going back to the, to the plains people. It is, it is just the most, like, I, I I agree that, like, none of this is, is funny. Like, the demise of the Pac-12, like, it's, it's treated nationally like it's this punchline. Like, it's just, like, everyone's dunking on them and almost outwardly kind of rooting for it, which I don't really understand. Um, but there are comedic, excuse me, there are comedic elements to it for sure. And, uh, the funniest thing is the, the just absolute worst program in the conference uh, being the one that that sort of is, is is has pushed people to a place mentally where it feels like the conference is closer to death than it has I mean, even in the wake of USC and UCLA leaving because I think there was some sentiment about that then but the months passed and people are talking about a media rights agreement and no additional schools had left for the Big Ten. And it kind of started to feel, even though there was all this Big 12, Colorado, Arizona stuff swirling, that it was at least possible they could hold together with those 10. And now with Colorado gone, that that's out the window. They're going to have to keep everyone and expand by at least one school. But San Diego State's got its issues with the Mountain West. And just feels like all of the boxes that need to be checked for the Pac-12 to continue surviving uh, and resembling at least something close to what it's been, uh, it's... You, you multiply it out, and, and, and it's a it's a vanishingly unlikely uh, percentage that you get in the end, it feels like. Well, I just saw a statement, though, that was released on Thursday night from the conference. The Pac-12 is comprised of world-leading universities and athletic programs who share a commitment to, develop, to developing the next generation of leaders, supporting student-athletes' academic and athletic excellence, and broad-based athletic success. We remain committed to our shared values and to continue to invest in our student-athletes. Today's decision by the University of Colorado has done nothing to disrupt that commitment. So everything's just fine, right? That's what, that's what the conference is telling me. The, the Pac-12 is a conference. 
That's the uh, that's the statement. Um, so they're looking. Hey, listen, they look forward to consummating. Is yeah, that was February thirteenth, two thousand twenty-three. Um. Is this buying time for everybody else to find a home? Is, is, is the Pac-12 dead right now? Like, will there be a, a West Coast conference that includes Washington, Oregon, Washington State, Oregon State in 2024? It's hard to say. Um, yeah. So you feels- think there's still a possibility that there is? Because that's probably more optimistic than I am. I, I think feels- it's got a stake in the heart. It kind of, yeah. I mean, I, that's a very fair uh, perspective at this point. It, it feels a little bit like a coin flip. It, it's, I wrote this yesterday. It's a matter of do the remaining school, are the remaining schools looking for reasons to leave or looking for reasons to stay? Does, and by the remaining schools, really Utah, Arizona, and Arizona State, um, don't discount the possibility that any of the other schools are having discussions with any other conference because I think it's, you know, it's butt covering time and you, you gotta, everyone's got to kind of look out for themselves while still probably holding out hope that uh, some some approvable number gets delivered in, in this media rights negotiation. But um, I don't know. Colorado surfaced in all of the rumors over the last few months for a reason. It's because they were far and away the most receptive to Brett Yormark's recruitment. So I don't know that either of the other four corner schools are like on the precipice the way that Colorado has been. But if that media rights number comes in from George Klyovkov or it's obvious he doesn't have a plan or the answer to, well, how are we going to get back to 10 is, uh, I don't know. Uh, San Diego state can't pay the exit fee now at the mountain West or, you know, a president or two are holding up, approval of someone else smu who knows and they just can't can't get it done you could easily see how at least one if not several well up to three of those remaining four corner schools could say you know what we wanted this to work it it was our preference to stay in the pac-12 but this just isn't there's a life raft over here in the big 12 you know i and also i think that colorado going to the big 12 makes a Big 12 defection, it makes that decision easier to feel good about if you're Utah or Arizona or Arizona State because you're not going alone from the Pac-12. Now there's like a consensus, right, that that's the right thing to do. And so, you know, it, it all goes back to why losing this last place program that was only ever competitive in the league one time is a big deal and could end up ultimately leading to the demise of the conference. Now, Brett McMurphy... Uh, who works for Stadium, correct? Um, mm-hmm. And he reported, Network, I think. Yeah, he was he was the first person that I saw report, and so I I don't I don't want to get it wrong. If somebody else had reported, I saw his report saying that Colorado was going. Like I thought that was the the, the most definitive, the first real definitive report that I was after their Regents meeting on Wednesday. Yeah, he was on with Softy yesterday on Thursday, <laughs> and. He said, he said that the Big Ten, um, sort of opening the idea the Big Ten would reconsider Oregon and Washington. And one of the reasons it didn't want to take them um, in the wake of the USC-UCLA departure is because they didn't want the blood of the conference on its hands. Like, they didn't want to be holding the knife that clearly decapitated the Pac-12. I was like, oh, that's that's really funny. <laughs> like, we just stuck the knife in their side and let them bleed out. But now that Colorado's gone, okay, we'll take... 
we'll we'll take we'll take Oregon and Washington. Um, is there a scenario where Oregon and Washington end up in a conference that is not that is not the Big Ten? From Washington's perspective, um, I'd be surprised if their president Anamari Kause actively pursued membership in the Big 12 if there was any thought that the Big 10 was an option excuse me was an option even at a reduced share or if there was a belief that the Pac 12 10 whatever that's going to be named in the future could continue operating um with Washington Oregon and let's say at least Stanford and Cal going forward um, if like, if those four schools are still, and that's not like, you know, nobody slipped me a piece of paper that said that it's just kind of my read on things and what Washington values and the academic prestige and all those things. And, um, you know, Oregon, I put, I, I would put in that conversation just because of the, uh, the, the brand factor. And like, if, if Oregon's still in the league, that means that the big 10 hasn't invited them. And it means that, that, you know, Oregon's not interested in the big 12 or whatever. And, you know, who knows? Again, all this stuff changes overnight, but if if there's still a feasible league, so like if they say if, if only Arizona leaves and they can replace Arizona and Colorado with San Diego State and SMU, and the the conference distributions aren't like awful, I could see at the presidential level Washington preferring that to leaving behind its sort of academic brethren and joining the Big Twelve. But man, two or three more schools go. What are you looking at? You know, now you're down to to eight, seven schools. You're gonna have to expand by. You can get to a point where you're gonna have to expand by three schools. Who are those three schools? And is San Diego State really still an option? Like we don't we don't know how that's all gonna shake out. So I I would say like I have a hard time seeing Washington in the Big Twelve, but. I just think nothing is sacred now and anything's on the table and like there are bills to pay Danny. There are, there's, there's a big old $17 million annual debt service payment. That's going to come due every fiscal year starting in 2026. Cause right now they're paying interest only on that. And that's going to jump up by enough that I think it's going to eat up any difference in college football playoff conference dollars which are going to be more. You heard Washington State's president, Kirk Schultz, talk about that when he, the, the infamous uh, June, end of June deadline he talked about for the media rights deal and said that distributions from that could end up being, quote, fairly flat. That was a quote that got a lot of play. But he said that Wazoo could still fix its budget going forward because they get more money from these CFP payouts, which is true. But at Washington, they've got this debt service hanging over them and all this. So, like there's bills to pay. The money is going to have to be there. This is not a, it's so funny. Like it's, it's as much greed as there is in college football. They're at a point where like, it's not, they don't want more money from a TV contract to have more money. They got to pay for stuff. They've, they've got, they've got dollars committed. The, the money has to be there. So it could get to a point where the dollars just like don't add up and they're looking at, well, I don't think anybody on the academic side at the University of Washington like would ever say they're jumping up and down to go to the Big 12, but if the Big 12's got a $31.7 million life, life raft sitting there and they're just simply 
is not a comparable option on the West Coast, I don't know how you don't explore that at that point. I would like to compliment, um, you had an exceptionally funny line yesterday in which you said, never underestimate the desire of university presidents to remain aligned with Stanford, which I thought was extremely funny and very appropriate for the, the academic snobbery that tends to take place or that, that Washington and the PAC 12 in general seems to have a hard time getting over. Um, I'm pretty mad about a range of things and I don't have a lot of patience for any of the bureaucratic university president. Like I don't blame the athletic directors here. Like I really, I really for them, I, I, I don't, um, I blame Larry Scott. I, I really blame the university presidents. Um, I blame the, the self-image or the denial of reality that the institutions in our conference have had. Um, I don't even really blame Klyavkov because I think he inherited, he got dealt a terrible hand and he tried to play it to the best of his ability, which was basically to get every, hold everybody together for as long as he could to try and make something work. But it's clear he, he doesn't have the deal that's capable of doing that. So whatever comes next, like I'm not going to be happy with it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be pretty furious. Probably the the deal that would make me least mad is if Washington ends up in the Big Ten. But even then, I'm gonna be mad because I don't see Washington State going with Washington, and I think that's lame to leave the Cougs. I do kind of like the idea of becoming an independent program and just becoming the we'll play anyone anywhere, and then embracing a role as the Bishop Sycamore of college football like completely like being the 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 school that lets anybody in that sort of doesn't necessarily have a roster that's consistent from one game to the next but just like completely thumbs its nose at 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 all of those different things this this whole thing is so freaking frustrating and it's comical like the (laughs) and you pointed this out do you think kliavkov knew on friday that Colorado was about to slip out the back door. Okay, so let, let's game this out. What's the best case scenario for why he got up at media day and said, nobody's leaving, it's not a concern, our 10 schools will stay together, they're committed, they're going to sign a grant of rights, no one's leaving for the Big 12. What's best the case, best case scenario? The best case scenario for that is he had verbal commitments from all 10 members, that they were encouraged by what they had heard from him regarding the direction of media rights negotiations. And they, they felt confident about signing that when, when, when they got a formal deal in front of him, that that's the best case scenario. The best case scenario is he was entirely ignorant that Colorado was continuing to play footsie with the big 12. So you think, you think clueless is a better best case scenario than liar. Yes. Cause I, Here's the the part about if he was lying, how did he expect this to play out? That is eventually yeah. going to come out. Like if he's a liar, quite a useless lie. Yeah, if he's a liar, that was basically, I don't want to look like an idiot for media day. I'd rather have my pants pulled down publicly next Wednesday. For the future of the conference, if you are if you're a Pac-12 president or an athletic director, hoping for the the Pac-12 to survive. 
isn't it way worse that he was clueless? Yes. Yes. So I like I I would man, I would I would hope he was lying. If I would like if if I if I had a stake in this from a university perspective, I would think, gosh, I hope that he was just lying to get through media day rather than what I think actually is the reality. He he was seriously so clueless as to it because there there are people who have told me since this happened that like they the, the vibe was Colorado's on the way out and if there were people oh. in the conference who felt that how people did they, that felt that last week yeah well Rick Rick George literally ran away from reporters at media day what that does was that funny. say yeah that that part's funny um so that's why I think Klyavkov needs to resign. And it's not because I'm not a person that calls for people's heads in sort of like someone's got to pay for this mistake. Like, I didn't think Daryl Bevel should be fired after the Super Bowl. Like, I think that I want my ounce of flesh is I think it's a stupid way to manage things. Klyavkov's strategy didn't work. And I don't know how he comes back from this. Klyavkov's strategy was to insist on patience and calm publicly even as mounting evidence piled up that things were not going well in this media rights negotiation in the hopes that he would eventually get to a destination that everybody would like. That he was basically like, I'm going to keep a stiff upper lip and not, and not acknowledge the flames that are licking at our heels because I think we can get to the destination. And he didn't get to the destination. And once that comes out, I'm like, okay, you, you were bluffing. Like, you were bluffing. You didn't have it. You don't have the cards. And so, yeah, if I was a university president, I'm not sure how I look to him and say, like, okay, George, go get us a replacement. That's so, I, I guess, the in my mind, the best case scenario for why he said what he said at Media Day would be that he, too, was aware that Colorado to the Big 12 was imminent, but had had back-channel conversations for months with a potential replacement and had modeled a media rights deal with that replacement with the with the the partners he was negotiating with what percentage what what likelihood of odds do we put on that scenario because it seems real it seems real pie and it seems like something that any major conference commissioner should have been doing mm -hmm. but it's hard to believe that's what was happening it shows how much more generous and kind you are as a person that you are affording that level of benefit of the doubt. Cause I look at it and say, there is not one thing that I've seen from the conference in the past 20 years, like going back before Larry Scott, that would indicate that level of foresight ever takes place. Within well, the conference. We're, we're not giving the benefit of the doubt so much. It's just, uh, we're, we're, we're theorizing on what the, if we're forcing ourselves to look on the, on the bright side and, and try to identify what the best case scenario would be. Yes. And that's what I would say is that there's no evidence that I would point to that suggests that level of thinking occurs. I just if don't see it. Like, if, if, you're, if you're advising George Klyovkov on matters of public relations, uh, don't laugh yet. Um, <laughs> let's say, I don't know, the Pac-12 gets through this. Or they don't get through it. They lose the four corners and Washington and Oregon eventually. And they got to go take like Fresno state and UNLV and some mountain West schools to like continue existing 
with the brand name, but it's not the Pac-12. But George Klyovkov has however many years left on his contract, so he's still the commissioner for as long as that position exists. What does he say publicly the next time he talks about, George, why did you get up at media day and say that this was not a concern, that you know the truth, that for the second year in a row at this event expressed utmost confidence that no schools will leave for the Big 12. Did you actually believe that? How could you, if if so, how could you not have known? Oh, this is, the way to handle this is exceptionally easy, and they'll never do it. The way to handle it is to say, I inherited an impossible situation. Mm. And I took a strategy that I thought gave the conference the best likelihood of surviving. I'm not sure how good the odds were on, on that strategy, but I thought it was the best option I had. And so I decided to put an unrelentingly positive spin on everything that was happening because I thought that that gave our members the best chance of sticking together. And my strategy didn't work. The hole was too deep or I wasn't skilled enough as an executive or the economy changed. And my hope wasn't enough to hold this conference together. I feel bad if anyone feels misled. I feel terrible that this conference did not survive at the level it did. And I wasn't able to hold the 10 remaining members together. I take personal responsibility for that. And I'm going to do everything in my power to make this conference with its current membership as good as it can be going forward. That's, that's what you say. And instead, what you're going to get is mealy-mouthed, self-affirming, we tried our best, every member decided what was best for them, it was a fluid situation and tough decisions, and I've always tried to, to lead with authenticity and honesty, and I'm really proud of what the conference members have done and staying together. And I think the conversation should really be about what these schools that we have now in the conference are doing because it's really exciting. If they pull off the Hail Mary of keeping the remaining nine and add, say, San Diego State or maybe Mm -hmm. SMU, there also will be a lot of messaging about how they upgraded and how how they didn't... (laughs) Well, look, when I said no schools were going to leave for the Big 12, I meant none that actually mattered. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's what you're going to that's what you're going to get. And you're kind that's, of already you're kind of already getting that in in anonymous sourcing and and such. And okay. That might be true. Like, look, I'm not going to sit here and say I think there's an argument to be made that San Diego State is a better cultural fit for the pack the the, the Pac-10, Pac-X, whatever you're going to call it, than than Colorado and the quality of programs and all of that, it doesn't matter. For six months, you've sent press releases expressing the spirit of unity, including Colorado. Like, I'm not going to forget that that happened. I, I know what Colorado just did, which is they dumped you. And to sit there and say, well, we're better off for that. No, you're not. Like, I, no, no. I wasn't better off when Breezy Hove dumped me when I was a senior in high school. I was like, well, I didn't really like her that much anyway. Hell no. I got dumped. Sucks. Yeah. Yeah. In recruiting parlance, they, they call it. We didn't, we didn't want him anyway. 
Yeah, but that's <laughs> like that sort of stuff. It that drives me up a wall. Like, no, that's not Colorado. Th- this is this hurts. Like, this is an absolute gut punch to realize that the Big Twelve has withstood the loss of its two tentpole members in Oklahoma and Texas better than the Pac-12 absorbed the loss of its two tentpole members of USC and UCLA. But that is the God's honest truth because Colorado isn't doing something stupid. They're doing what they think is in their best interest, and it's not the Pac-12. And that should be embarrassing and humbling, but that's real. Yeah, no, I I agree. And in realignment, I mean, optics matter as much as anything, right? Perception matters as much as anything, especially as it seeps into the minds of of the other decision makers at some of those schools that are perceived to be uh, more vulnerable than others. It's, you know, as with anything with the Pac-12, and it's always been a a criticism of them, arrogance is at the center of all of this, right? That when Oklahoma and Texas did leave the Big 12, the Pac-12 had a chance to add multiple Big 12 schools. And they were like, and, no, they and don't passed fit. On it. <laughs> and, I, you know, we don't know what the the TV modeling was at the time. Um, there's a chance that they modeled out Baylor and Texas Tech and Oklahoma State and whoever, TCU, you know, whoever. And the network said, mm, you know, you're, you're, better, you're better off without them. You know, you're better, you, like, time you got USC and UCLA, right? So think about what the per school valuation is with those schools in the conference is a school like Texas tech Baylor, whoever going to increase that, that per school share or decrease it. They're probably not going to increase it. Right. So it could just be that the, the money didn't pencil out, but you know, someone like Brett Yormark in that position probably would have had the foresight to see, well, it's not, I need to sell these presidents on. It's not just the revenue. If we don't take them out now, they could take us out down the road. <laughs> like, this isn't a one-time thing, Oklahoma and Texas to the SEC. This isn't over, you know? Like, Kevin Warren is is the Big Ten commissioner, and he, you know, I would imagine that there's at least some knowledge in the business about what he thought about the potential of realignment and expansion before it actually happened with SC and UCLA. So, I don't know. There's a... a lack of foresight and a tenor of of arrogance at every time. I mean, for George Klyovkov to have spent as much time as he did in the California State Legislature trying to get UCLA to stay. I mean, did anybody think there was any chance of that happening? Yeah. Was was that in any and even if you think there's a 5% chance, is that worth the nope. investment? The risk versus reward there was, you know, now maybe he could say, well, Look, we by making a stink out of it, we guaranteed some money for one of our member schools for Cal for for the foreseeable future. So, you know, but maybe that happens anyway. Um, yeah, I mean, I in in the academic component was always going to be there with the idea of of the Pac-12 adding Big Twelve schools back in the day. Um, the Alliance, gosh, remember the Alliance? The Alliance was one of the dumber things that I've ever seen. Um, and it. It it felt that way at the time. Um, Handshake I would agreement, like to... <laughs> gentlemen's agreement. Looked him in the eye. Uh, I'd like to I'd like to quote Alex Kirshner here. Alex Kirshner hosts a podcast called The Split Zone Duo, um, which I enjoy a great deal. And on the day that before Colorado's defection became official, but the reports were there, he said 
Got to give it up to the Big 12 offices here. I believe their year of leaking to credulous reporters was nothing more than throwing a lot at the wall and hoping something stuck or shook. And these rabble-rousers got a direct hit to sink a battleship. Amazing. They won. That is 100%, I think, an accurate summation of the, the Big 12 strategy and the Pac-12 thinking it was above this and, and having too high opinion of itself left its, left its hind parts exposed. I would also like to say that unlike USC and UCLA, who there may be some logistical difficulties in absolutely hammering those schools on their way out, there should be no mercy provided to Colorado this upcoming season. Every team should keep its regulars, run, hurry up, try to hang as many points as possible on the buffs. Like, try to destroy them. I, I would like us to get mad a little bit. Like, some semblance of pride here. Can Colorado get out of the 2023 season? Is it too late? <laughs> no, man. I'm, I'm sure Dion sold reality programming to people. Klyavkov couldn't deliver the deal. Like, that's, I don't think it's his fault. Like, I really, I really don't. I think he negotiated the best deal that was there. I think, I think the television economy has changed. Like, nobody pays attention to these things. But part of the backdrop here is that you have what have been described as regional sports networks that are struggling. Like, Bally's is in bankruptcy. Diamond Sports, which has contracts with four major league teams, hasn't been paying those teams their broadcast rights. It's like the Giants and the... Like, there, there are... There are signs that that part of the business is on fire. Two weeks ago, Bob Iger, who's the president of Disney, came out and basically said that they might be looking for a partner in ESPN because the, the television business is more challenging than he thought. Like Those are terrible signs. for, And, and Klyavkov has nothing to do with that. I think it's possible that the economy changed, and that's that's one of the things that they ran into. But it doesn't matter at this point because for six months, for six months, you put up this front that like we're not worried, and we should have been. We should have we should have been taking the lack of a deal as a sign that the money's not there. Because you know what, the money's not there because Colorado's gone, and I don't think they wanted to be gone. I think they looked at the two options and did what was best for themselves. Is it strange to you that we're not that far from a world where Colorado, and I'm not saying like there's indications that this is happening, but obviously it's what's everyone, everyone's speculating as like the nuclear scenario for the Pac-12, so let's just game it out. Colorado, Utah, Arizona, and Arizona State are all in the Big 12 receiving $31.7 million a year. That's 40% of what the new Pac-12 would be, 40% of its teams. Mm -hmm. getting a share in the Big 12 that for some reason no network would deliver to the Pac-12. Is it just a matter if oh. the Big 12 went first and the funds aren't there? I I don't know, because I don't... Yeah, like I'm going to... When you say it that way, yeah, I don't know. That does sound strange to me, Isn't but I don't, really the mechanics of, I don't know the mechanics of how, how that would work. Where is the Big 12 getting that money? Like, does it just automatically grow because they've got another team? I, w I would assume that that's not necessarily the case. Well, it's been reported that they negotiated a, a pro-rata clause with ESPN that if they expanded with Power 5 members, they would receive a full share, the oh. same as what the other 12 teams are, were already agreed to, to be getting. Does that surprise me? 
No, because that's probably in the contract. Could they get that now if they didn't have that deal? I'm not sure. And maybe they could. And that just reflects the appetite for college football on the West Coast and in a West Coast conference or in a conference without USC and UCLA. But that, when you say it that way, yeah, that does surprise me. It is, I don't know. It feels, it just, it, it feels, it's one more example of the, the networks as puppet masters where it's yeah. like, we're yes. not even saying that a school like Colorado or Arizona isn't worth $31.7 million a year. We just don't want to pay it to them in the Pac-12. It yeah. almost kind of makes you think like there's not an appetite at the very highest levels of this for the Pac-12 to continue existing. And that's possible. I don't think that's true, though, because they do want those late-night windows. I mean, I don't yeah. think people in the Pac-12 are hollering for like Pac-12 after dark scheduling. But like, they, can't I, want them, they can't want them that badly. If yeah. No, you're right. This is no, taking this I'm saying. long. So, but that Big 12 deal with that carve-out and that option, like that, that exists because that deal was negotiated, right? Like that deal's already been signed. I don't know if you didn't have that signed deal and, they, and the Big 12, if there wasn't that option in the contract and the Big 12 went to, to, to ESPN and Fox and said, look, we're going to get Colorado but we need you guys to pump in additional the additional full share to get them here. I don't know if they could get that now, and maybe they could. And if they could, that's exactly what you said, is that there's not the appetite among the television networks for a Power 5 West Coast conference. I just, I don't think that's, I think it's possible that that option exists because of when the deal was negotiated and it was signed a year ago. So do you think I want to I want to challenge you on your George Klyovkov needs to resign thing because I yes. think it's a perf, it's a perfectly fair opinion, but to to be of that opinion and to actually want that to happen, you must think that it's just the conference is dead and there's no point to even try to continue negotiating or expanding, right? I I don't think he can be taken at face value. I don't if think he, he if he be... resigns, it's over, right? I mean, the commissioner no, resigns and think... the. If you if you brought in a different a different person to 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 pick up the media negotiating rights, like I don't think these guys are irreplaceable, and he has some sort of institutional knowledge that isn't replaceable. I think you bring someone else in here and say, can they get can that person push a deal across the finish line? You know who actually added teams to the Pac-12 during his reign as commissioner? Larry. Larry's like, look. I am, I'm plus five on George right now. I added <laughs> Utah and Colorado. He lost Colorado and USC and UCLA. Yeah. I mean, what's, that's... what's, um, what's the cost per defection going to be based on what George Klyovkov's salary is? <laughs> like, what is the Pac 12 going to end up paying him per school to, per, <laughs> per school leaves that the left. conference? Yeah. I mean, I guess what I the reason that I think he should he should quit and they'd be better off with even just his deputy negotiating those contracts is because every school looks at him as someone they can lie to now, right? Like, yeah. I mean, if he, because we've agreed, either he didn't know that Colorado was was easing toward the door. Or he lied about it and covered for them as they were easing toward the door. Like one of those two things is true. And any other school that's now currently looking, because all, all eight of the nine other schools 
everyone except for Stanford is currently looking at like, okay, what's my fallback? What's my next best option? What, what they should be actively exploring that except for Stanford, which doesn't really care about athletics and whose half of their faculty would be just as happy if they only had intramurals. But they're all looking at that. And I think it's hard. I think you'd be better off having someone else who can at least potentially put the fear of God into him of like, you have to tell me what's happening right now because George has just, he's clearly, he got, he got caught, caught bluffing. And I don't know how you recover from that as an executive. And it's just such a downer after what was kind of an exciting media day when we got an opportunity to get excited about some of the things that we are actually going to see on the field in what is going to be a Pac-12 season, Christian. You know what the, the biggest thing that jumped off the page for me was at this event? Like going back through the notes. And if you read my story from, from Friday, you'd probably know. You don't need to ask, did I read your story? Of course I well, read your story, ro- it's Christian. The royal, it's the royal you. The <laughs> you know, the many legions of say who say podians who may be may be listening. Um two things. One was Kalen DeBoer pointing out that Romo Dunze clocked a four three four forty this offseason. And then subsequently kicking myself for not asking if that was hand timed because <laughs> I know I, I know how Twitter, like, as soon as I was writing that, I'm like, oh, the, the immediate reaction to this is going to be, he did not, that was hand-timed, that's not accurate, he wouldn't run that at the Combine, which is, like, you know, maybe legitimate, right? College teams put out exaggerated 40 times all the time. I don't really think Kalen DeBoer is that kind of guy, necessarily. He's pretty, you know, keeps things pretty straight, um, doesn't, you know, does, I don't I don't think would embellish somebody's testing times or benchmarks or anything just to, to try to make headlines. But um, what did, did, what was your reaction to that number? That is uh, that's moving for a man of his size. Um, if he runs, if, if he runs sub four, four at the combine, he's a first round pick. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, his, his size and, and the strength he's had and the production that he's had, if he runs sub four, four, he's, he's going to, he's going to go in the first half of the first round. So, I don't think that means he will run sub four four, but it's certainly. I was like, if if that is true, that changes that changes the 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 realm, the neighborhood where he's going to get drafted. I think even sub four five probably puts him in because if you like, if you told me right now, like Romo Dunze is going to run, let's say even a, a four four nine at the combine, I'd say without knowing he ran a four three four this off season, Okay, that's maybe even a little bit faster than I mm-hmm. would expect. Yeah. Um he was a really good high school sprinter, won the state champion in the state championship in the 200 as a junior. Probably would have ran even faster as a senior. Um but he's I feel like I've I've always kind of looked at him maybe more as the a guy who's faster with the ball in his hands, so to speak, where 100 100% agree. He's not necessarily a 40 foot race guy, mm-hmm. but Man, it that sure seems like he might also be that. I also think that the fact that because he wears very low ankle socks, I think that makes him look faster. When you we had him on, good. I was when I, when we had him on, I was talking to him about like kind of the size. Like I feel like his pads are small. Um, he looks strong when he's got the ball, like confident and and really looks like he moves well. I was also listening to Kalen DeBoer. 
Um, and it wasn't because the format worked. You guys talked to him. Was it like upstairs at a press conference? And then they go downstairs and be on stage with Yogi Roth. It was it was weird. Um, so for for those who don't like media days is only partially about the actual media. Um, it, a lot of it is they're recording, you know, quick hits with. CBS or ESPN mm-hmm. or Fox and the day before the players are and like you probably saw some on social media are in uniform and you know filming the little I'm gonna stand here with the ball looking tough or I'm gonna you know hyping up the crowd like little shots that they can use just as part of the game broadcast and they load up on all that for the season and um, the the actual media day event you kind of you you get coaches and players sort of like in between their other obligations and the main stage so to speak which is what you saw on Pac-12 network in the past that's been I want to say like a 25 minute press conference with the head coach stationed at one podium and then the two players stationed at another podium in another part of the room and it's all recorded and transcribed by ASAP sports Um, and that's that's like if you're a beat writer or like if you've been doing this a little while, um, it's kind of known that like that's not really that important. Like that's not the because it's all <laughs> recorded. The questions that get asked are just like, oh my god! Like you, you had someone in there. Some guy introduced himself as a longtime USC fan. And he's asking <laughs> questions at a media event. Hell yeah! Um, you get just some some very strange questions from some folks who uh, you probably won't see in the press box come come season time um but but that was in a nightclub so that was in the zook nightclub on the first floor <laughs> yes, yes. of uh resorts world there in las yes. vegas the, no. the the worst dressed collection of human beings you'll ever see in that nightclub i would imagine now one of the benefits of listening to that is that you get soundtracks that get randomly inserted and i'm gonna play this is kaylin DeBoer, and he's it's actually a it's a good it's a decent question it's talking about and asking if Michael Penix, if the biggest improvement has come in his leadership. And here was DeBoer's answer. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's definitely in the leadership. Um, you know, we know that he's got uh, the reads and he's understood the offense now because it's been really the same system since 2019 uh, when he was at Indiana and uh, was introduced to it at that time. So him and the reads. That's when the music just drops in and you get no warning that it's happening. And all of a sudden it gets a little funky. Needs and the progressions and, and all of that, the checks, um, you know, it changes from week to week and the game plan and so forth. But he, he understands it inside now. So now it's just a matter of him leading. And uh, I don't think there's a yeah, meeting um, that we have where I ask for input and thoughts uh, where he doesn't speak up and say something anymore. And uh, that happens on the field. And, you know, he brings his A game every day. He knows that's what we need from him. A year ago at this time, um, he wasn't even named. No Did you take that from uh, the, the actual broadcast? Or? No, it's from YouTube. They posted it on YouTube. So I'm sure that some sort of highlight film is playing in the background. But all you get is just a little funky track underneath Caleb DeBoer. Welcome to Zook Nightclub. <laughs> yeah. Media day at the nightclub. Uh, it's a little disconcerting when you're just listening to it. And there's no, like on YouTube, there was no there was no highlight, which I tend to take as indicative of the prowess of the Pac-12 network. It's like not everything's connected. So that even that format was a little bit different than it's been in the past. Usually it's a straight, you know, the ma- their time on the main stage is all questions from the media, whereas this was... 
what, 20 minutes with Ashley Adamson and Yogi Roth. And then the head coach would go from that to like a little 10 minute breakout where it was, it was a smaller group and he'd take questions from reporters at a table right outside. Um, and then the players would do their time on the stage with Ashley Adamson and Yogi Roth and then do the same thing at, at a little table afterwards. So that's, that's not, you know, I was there for that. You observe, you just make sure nothing interesting is said, but then you've got the whole rest of the day to, you know, catch. I, I probably had like three different conversations with Caitlin DeBoer just in between, in between his other obligations, one-on-one, just kind of, you know, informally, like there was also all that other stuff was happening on the third floor. So you take two escalators up and they've got meeting rooms and whatnot up there and a big area for, I will say logistically, this was probably the best one I've been to. Um, the, the Hollywood setup was, was never real. Um, like last year lunch was outside and it was really hot and like everyone was crammed into the shaded area. And if everybody at the event was up there, there wasn't enough places for people to sit and the Wi-Fi didn't work the whole time. And, um, not nearly as much of a disaster this year. Pac-12 football. It's fantastic. <laughs> I, I will say that there is nothing that speaks to the realities of modern sports journalism more than attending a press conference to, and I'll quote Christian Capel here, make sure nothing interesting is said. <laughs> <laughs> We're just going to monitor all the public statements to make sure nothing noteworthy is that's disclosed. What that, that's what that portion is. <laughs> Now, like that's really what it is. Now, there was one thing in listening to what Kalen DeBoer said that I had a question about, and it came on the heels. He, he was praising Elijah Jackson and saying, hey, he got banged up last year, and we think that he's really shown a lot of progress, and we're excited about what he's going to bring. And then he added, added this part, and it's about the, the defensive backs in general. He says, we got Elijah Jackson at corner. We've got Mish Powell moving to nickel. And then Dominique Hampton moving to safety, and then it was followed by this. The uh, the cross training by position, I think, uh, gives us more depth in case you know situations do come up where you know now guys have got a lot of banked reps at other positions, and we'll make sure we get the the best football players on the football field um, when those times do arise. What's he saying there? Look at you finding something interesting. That's the <laughs> that's the interesting thing. There it is. That's why you listen. <laughs> I was making sure nothing interesting was said, and I found it. <laughs> yeah, I think so. It, it's a it is a very interesting comment. I think he means like, look, if if Dom Hampton goes down last year, mm-hmm. that was sort of a new position, right? It was you know they they'd always had a nickel, but the nickel and you know the the husky is different than the nickel under Jimmy Lake, right? So mm-hmm. you know Dom Hampton played there, but if he goes down. You've got like Ham Fabiculon in behind him, but he's new to it too. I think now, like you move Mish Powell there. If Mish Powell goes down, well, you probably just move Dom Hampton back down. Mm-hmm. Um, depending how you feel about your safety depth, and I think they just they got themselves in situations last year where, especially at corner, Cornwell really was every position because um, Asa was out for a while and uh, Alex Cook was playing hurt. Um, where a guy goes down you don't necessarily feel like the person you plug in needs to be the guy right behind him on the depth chart, the number two corner, because, well, you might feel better about your depth at like safety, for example. I don't think that's going to be the case this year. I think it's going to be reversed, but 
maybe you're you feel like your third best corner is playing safety, or maybe you feel like your third best corner is um would be would be your second best corner, maybe your best corner, but he's better at husky in this case, Mish Powell. So you move maybe you move Mish Powell over to cover a a corner who's hurt, and then you move Dom Hampton down to down to nickel, and you plug in, you know, Tristan Dunn or Vince Nunley or Michaela Steen or somebody at safety, and um, yeah, I I think they they've taken so much effort to like try to put their best collection of five on the field together, even moving you know moving two different guys positions, Dom Hampton back to safety, Mish Powell out, out to Husky, bringing in a transfer, bringing in a JUCO transfer, you know, Asa Turner is the only guy who's going to be playing the position he played last year in this secondary, even though Mish Powell and Dom Hampton were both starters um, day one last year. So I, I think it's, it's kind of the same thing on the offensive line where like, if you look at the depth chart, they put out the first depth chart that they put out, assuming that the starters are Fautanu, Bulo, Mele, Kalepo and Rosengarten, you know, they're going to have, someone listed as the backup left tackle, someone lift, listed as the backup right tackle, someone listed as the backup left guard, right guard, and center. But if the left tackle goes out, if Fautanu goes out, for example, I don't think they would necessarily plug in the number two left tackle on that depth chart. I think they would probably kick either Bulo or Kalepo out to tackle, at least at this point, right? You mean Maybe they'll feel a little bit better about the depth through camp. Like, they've They've given Garen Hatchett some reps at, at right tackle. You know, maybe he'd step in there if Rosengarten got hurt. But they've talked before about how, you know, all of those starters, even Mateo Mele, I don't think you're going to move him off center, but even Mateo Mele, all those all those veterans have cross trained, have have practiced at tackle. I think they all came in as tackles, in fact, have played some guard. Mele's played, you know, either practiced or played at, at every position, I think. So um, and I think the defensive backfield is is similar. That you know, I've I've had conversations with people in the program too about like some of the freshmen coming in, or or even twenty twenty fours they're recruiting about. Hey, you know, is this guy is this guy definitely a corner? Is he definitely a safety? And a lot of times the response is that like they'll they'll cross train them. They'll they'll yeah like this will kind of be his home position, but he's going to learn you know both, or he's going to learn all three. Um, and I think it's it's just to give themselves as many options as possible if they face the the kind of nuclear option like they did last year where the injuries just pile up in, in such a crazy way. There's long been a school of thought among football coaches, and it's not just at the college level, um, that when you move, you because of an injury, you don't want to weaken yourself at two positions, which means you don't want to take a guy whose best position is corner and move him to safety because he's a better safety than your backup safety because you're then going to have to replace him at corner. Increasingly recently, there's a thought, and I've talked about it before, called sort of weak link positions. And the secondary is considered a weak link position in which the strength of the unit is determined by the weakest link. And if you have one DB that is clearly sort of a below the performance level of your other guys, the whole unit gets compromised. And and there's kind of this, some NFL teams are taking it, and specifically some of the some of the companies that work as consultants for NFL teams are talking about, like, the best way to approach your safety, or your secondary, is to try and 
get your best four players or five players on the field and then make each guy's job, the difficulty of his job, kind of tied to his ability. So you want your best secondaries player, his job to be as hard for him as the job for your least talent or least proficient or least experienced secondary player. Kind of that, that that's the way to build the best secondary is to sort of try to make it a shared responsibility and be willing to move two guys to accommodate for an injury if that's going to get your best five players on the, on the field. That was, that was kind of why Kalen DeBoer's comment about cross-training because it seemed like it was different than some of the things that happened last year, although they were just so ravaged by injuries across the board that it was just it was tough for them to... I, did they ever have what they felt was a full-strength unit out there? Definitely not full strength. They had um, they had their starting five together. I want to say, man, was it the Oregon State game? Yeah. So I think because Mish Powell came back against Cal, but he didn't start. Um, and I think Oregon State was the the first game since the opener. Yeah. Where they they all five guys took the field and started the started the game together but we know that you know Jordan Perryman was never healthy yeah he was banged up the whole year Alex Cook was never healthy last year even though he played he played through it I mean he told me pro day that he he couldn't do arm weightlifting all season um and you know you go across the country that's going to be the case you don't hear about it you wouldn't necessarily know because some guys are just really tough really tough and they play through it and they play well and and you know if, if a coach or the player doesn't doesn't give any indication you wouldn't necessarily know but yeah I, I don't think that Kalen DeBoer would say that secondary was full strength at, at any point after the first few plays of the Kent State game frankly yeah it's so it's so hard too because health is a relative thing as well like for Jordan Perryman if they had more depth at corner he very well might have missed games to get healthy right like the ability of a player and I know that people will say it's a you're either good to go or you're not good to go availability plays a factor in that because if you've got a guy at 70 percent and you've got his backup at 100 percent and you feel pretty good about that you you can give the guy a game off and that that luxury or that that wiggle room just doesn't happen when your depth gets decimated you have guys playing that might not otherwise be playing if if their backups were healthy. Would have been interesting to see the impact Elijah Jackson might have had last year if he'd been healthy, because he stepped in against Arizona State and he played forty some snaps, um, wasn't targeted. I think that was like a a pretty solid. It wasn't his debut, but it it kind of was. He hadn't played that much in a game before, and if he's healthy after that, you know maybe he pulls a start and he he plays a full game and you kind of see some of that athleticism on display that everybody's raved about now for a couple of years and looks like he's going to you know he's really going to get a shot to to display it he's he's the one guy you know one of a handful of guys in that defense I kind of look at and think if you're looking for reasons why this year could be a lot different especially on the back end primarily on the back end he he'd be he'd be a reason um He's got the the huge wingspan and the forty one inch vert, and he's. I, I'd be interested to see if he clocked a a forty time this off season. What it was because he's somebody I think you'd expect to be one of the faster guys on the team, and 
Um, seems like he's got all the tools, all the all the traits. They, you know, coaches raved about his spring. Kalen DeBoer, you know, brought him up again at media day a couple times. Um, you know, rightfully a lot of attention on Jabbar Muhammad because he's done it at the Power Five level, and they went out and got him for a reason. But Elijah Jackson's one, I think he he's a candidate for at the end of the season. You could be talking about like, okay, you know, if, if their secondary was a lot better, it was because. Yeah, one of these one of these guys, give him credit, who Jimmy Lake identified and got on and, and really wanted and, you know, maybe would have been the next great Jimmy Lake DB. Um, you know, he, he could be a guy you're looking at and, and talking about as being in that category if he can stay healthy. Here's Kalen DeBoer uh, at Pac-12 Media Day talking about Elijah Jackson. You brought up Elijah Jackson. I think he's had a great, uh, year, you know, full year of training, um, development, growth, uh, building confidence. Um, he's got the tools, and uh, last year he just couldn't break through a few of the dings uh, that, uh, you know, football bring you. And, um, you know, he along with, uh, you know, we got Asa Turner back. Um, you know, Mish Powell, we moved from corner to the nickel. Uh, Dom Hampton from the, the nickel to the safety. You know, some, some of those moves, uh, you know, I think have really fit uh, the, 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 the skill sets of our guys. And uh, I'm excited to see that come to fruition this fall. Who do you think the leader on the team is? Is it Penix as the quarterback? Like who who would you identify as kind of the the heartbeat or the the central leader for this team? Yeah, I mean your your starting quarterback has to be one of them, especially mm-hmm. if he's a senior. Obviously, he'll be a, he'll be a captain. I think the, you know, the guy who who Caitlin DeBoer, you know, kind of hands it over to in the locker room or or at the end of a practice or you know, like last year, you think about who that was, and that was probably Alex Cook, Jackson Kirkland, Wayne Talapapa. Um, I, I think Edifuanyu Lafosio mm-hmm. is that guy. Um, I think they'd like Asa Turner to be that guy. You know, he's, I don't know how much of a vocal leader he is. He's more, I think, lead by example and work ethic and, you know, role model, right? Watch how this guy goes about his business and, and studies the defense and, and gets his his work in, um, you know, I, I, I think that Ryan Grubb would probably tell you like, you'd want your, your center to be that guy too, you know, especially mm-hmm. being a six year senior Mateo melee. And I think they were trying to pull a little more of that out of him this spring. You heard Grubb talk a little bit about, you know, he'd like to see him take every, every single thing, you know, more seriously and kind of take his responsibility a little more seriously to rally the team and you know move everybody around him and and those sorts of things. Yeah, I th- I think um someone like Jalen Polk established himself as as that kind of guy, I think pretty early on in his career that he's he's a very positive presence and another guy who works really hard and kind of sets the example and sets the tone and you know, you really that whole that whole receiver group, right? Because they're all the same age now. They're all in their fourth year in college. They've all produced. They've all kind of got the cachet. So yeah, that'll be interesting offensively. Who kind of, who kind of rises rises above to to be the the captain, you know, vocal leader type. But um, I think there's a there's a handful of candidates. They've certainly got a lot of experience um, defensively. Though I mean, I look at I look at Adafuanyilafosio as as being that guy, or at least one of them. It was interesting though. The other thing that came out very clearly from listening to what Ulofosio and Penix talking and then and then Kalen DeBoer, I view last season as an incredible unexpected success. I I I didn't I didn't know how good they were gonna be, and I think when we talked before the season, I'm like, I'm open to the idea. I believe that last year's team 
I don't think their record was indicative of the talent that was here, that, that was at the program. Um, so I was open to the idea that they were going to be good, but they, I mean, they had a really, really good season. Hearing from the players and DeBoer, they're very conscious of the fact that they didn't win anything, right? Like they won the Alamo Bowl and they beat Texas there, but they didn't, they didn't, they didn't get to the Pac-12 championship game, let alone win the conference. Like they're very conscious of, and I don't think they see the season through the same lens that I do where I'm like, if I was grading, like that's an A season based on what it could have been, what it looked like coming into it, where they were a year ago. And I think they would look at it and the players and the coaches are more likely to say, we missed some opportunities there. And that I don't know if I'd go so far as to say they have sort of a this unfinished business sense, but they're not looking at this as, hey, we want to replicate last year. Like they're, they're looking at this as last year showed what we could do. And it also showed how much further we need to go. Yeah. I mean, I think Kalen DeBoer would, would probably put a pretty high grade on last season too. But, um, you know, if there's, if there's one thing that maybe stuck in his mind this off season or just knowing how coaches operate and, and what they think about, I would, I would guess it would be the, the secondary, mm-hmm. you know? I'm sure it were it was the areas of the team where it was like, okay, you've got these guys back and you kind of know who they are and what they're capable of and what you can count on from them. But what wasn't good enough last year and how do you address that like right now to make sure that, yeah, you don't waste, you know, this, this once in a generation decision that Michael Penix Jr. made to come back to school and, and still having all his receivers around him and this talent on the O-line and an edge rusher and, um, yeah, I, I, what's funny is at the athletic last year, we we did as a staff put a grade on every Power Five school. Mm-hmm. So I had I had Washington, Wazoo, Oregon State, and Oregon. I gave I gave Washington an A minus, mm-hmm. um, just because I thought, you know, it, there there are some schools in the Pac-12 who you could grade their season as an A without winning the conference championship. Um, Washington's in a tier where you you can't be saying they had an A season if they didn't win a conference title. Mm-hmm. Or at least play for one, but I'd say probably win. And especially, you know, it was it was easy to identify some negatives, right? It, defensively, primarily losing to Arizona State, right? It, can a Washington team that that lost to a three and nine conference opponent say that it had an A season? So um, it was kind of the perfect blend of it was feel good for for the fan base. It was an instant, no doubt about it, turnaround that. Okay, the Jimmy Lake era did not, you know, is not going to have a lasting impact. Is not going to, it did not do permanent damage to the program. The offense can be really good. These receivers are who you thought they were. They are as good as as everyone said and everyone believed who watched them practice. This team is capable of great things, but also, yeah, there's some issues to address. This defense isn't what it was. They got to figure some things out there. Christian, before we bring on our friend Ian, who we love to talk to each and every week, I've got a confession to make. Because I come on here and I talk about IP McFarland Company and I say things about outsourcing sales or locking in a key customer or embedding an executive with your sales team for your growing business. But I kind of don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Not particularly good at sales. In fact, much of my professional career, if you want to call it that, has been avoiding uh, that task. And it doesn't appear that I'm particularly 
good at endorsing a sales team. But this Ian guy, Ian McFarland, in addition to loving Husky football in general and Billy Joe Hobart in particular, he seems to know an awful lot about sales and an awful lot of people in the industry when it comes to sales. So if you need a stone cold killer to help with sales strategy, check him out, ipmcfarland.com. And it's time for our conversation with Ian. Good morning, guys. And first off, I want to thank everyone for the donations to the telethon. Um, with your kindness, we were able to raise the $2 necessary to pay for my antibiotic to help knock out this cold. And I just can't thank you all enough. So my question this week relates to a post I saw on Twitter. Um, it was about Sean Alexander and how good he was at his at his peak. I've always used Sean as my justification for stating that Seattle is a very loyal sports town, but it is not a great sports town because it feels like people like Dan Wilson and Jake Locker are celebrated for their longevity and mediocrity (laughs) over people like Sean Alexander, who achieved highs very few others have in the city's history. But I've always felt that the University of Washington was a little bit out, a little bit outside this fray because the fan base is a little bit different, and there's frankly a history of winning at at very very high levels. Is that still true? Because I look at the last twenty years, which included a very very successful stretch under Peterson, and I look at what the the fan experience at the game is and what is happening within the fan base. And I see a claim national title, which is silly and a half claim national title in 1984, which people fight to the death, which I don't really understand why I see the greatest setting. I see the zone. I see stealing people's traditions between the third and fourth quarters. And I see a team that resembles the hydroplane watching fan base of Seattle more than the unique thing that UW football fans used to be. Is there a way to get out of this? Am I crazy for thinking that that UW is part of this fray? Am I crazy for thinking that Seattle's a a bad sports town? And I ask that to two people whose livelihood depends on that. So um, this is a very long question. I hope you guys are, are having a great week. I'm looking forward to the season actually getting up and going. Be well. Think there's some merit to it? The uh, the Dan Wilson-Jake Locker comparison. Stings a little bit, doesn't it? I was, was not anticipating that. Uh, although I would ask Ian, did Sean Alexander ever bat 285 with 18 home runs while playing the most demanding position in all of baseball? <laughs> Dan Wilson did in 1996. And he was an all-star. I like Dan Wilson a lot. Um, but what Ian is saying is, is very true about the types of... There are certain personality types that are embraced in Seattle. Uh, we love really stubborn, feisty players. Gary Payton, Richard Sherman. We love very sort of understated grinder personas. Dan Wilson, John Olerud kind of comes into that category. Um, 
I don't know if that's Locker, but I think what we love most about Locker is similar to what we love most about Ken Griffey Jr., in which we really love that he loves us. Like, there's a little bit of codependence. Like, one of the things that we really like about Jake Locker is that he really loved Washington. Like, he chose to come there. He chose to stay there. Like, it's, it's, it's hard to knock him when it was kind of the team that fell around him. I, I don't know. That's, that's my perception on it. But I don't think he's wrong about, like, the type of personality that, that, that Sean Alexander has it is not one that we don't view that as favorably other uh, we hold it against him in a way that other fan bases probably wouldn't there's there's three factors that worked against Sean Alexander two of which are not his fault at all one of which you could argue is his fault but who could really blame him okay and the two that aren't his fault at all were the 7 year contract they gave him okay he didn't ask to. That's for that. okay. Give, you're right. You're right. That's him. Give him a, a ridiculous. Or, that, that's deal. the Seahawks. Yeah. Um, he played for an all-time elite. Played ran behind an all-time elite offensive line. Who wouldn't want to? Don't mm-hmm. you want your favorite for, pro football team to have an all-time elite offensive line all the time? But he gets knocked for that because it's like, well, he, yeah, he set the he set the single season NFL touchdown record, but was that really him? Couldn't anyone have done that? Okay, well, but he did, and was was that his fault? You know, and then the the other one is that he tended to run out of bounds and shy away from contact when he didn't didn't need to take it. But like, oh no, so he's he's gonna like maybe live longer and <laughs> maybe be be a little bit healthier into old age as a result. Like, do you think he do you think he'd go back and do it differently? I don't think so. I'd like to add one to the the ledger of his fault. <laughs> because after a game that the Seahawks won to qualify for the playoffs, like it was a meaningful game, on a play that resulted in a touchdown that won that game, a quarterback sneaked to Matt Hasselbeck, Sean Alexander claimed he was stabbed in the back because he came up one yard short of the rushing title. <laughs> there was that. There was that, yeah. There has never been a more tone deaf reaction. (laughs) And part of me, part of me wants to give part part of me wants to give him credit for it. It's the it's the regular season finale in two thousand four, and the Seahawks need to win to to get into the playoffs. If they win, they'll 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 make the playoffs with a record of nine and seven. They'll win the division, and they'll host the. God, they might even be in at eight and eight, but I'm pretty sure they're nine and seven. And they'll host the Rams in the first week of the playoffs. And they're down near the goal line. And they 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 run a quarterback sneak and, and Hasselback scores. And after the game, when Sean Alexander finds out that he's finished one yard short of the rushing title, which is won by Curtis Martin, he tells Les Carpenter of the and maybe he told the group of reporters there that now he knew what it felt like to what it felt like to be stabbed in the back and it included the the statement of we were on the freaking goal line we were going to score and that he should have been given the ball and it's one of the part of me wants to give him credit for being honest because i think a lot of times people yeah. like they say what they're expected to say as opposed to what they actually feel and he said what he felt but even when someone explained it to him of why it was going to look bad, he still felt that way, which I was just like, 
yeah, that's <laughs> it causes me to scrunch up my eyebrow and like, I don't know if you get it, man. Like, I'm not yeah. sure if you understand what's going on. It's not uh it's not the, the, the team first attitude that fans want to see reflected from their players. I will say quite the uh quite the through line running through Seahawks history of running backs not getting the ball at the one yard line. <laughs> and now he's stuck his finger into the open wound and twisted it around. Um <laughs> there's some truth to some of the stodgy elements of husky football, but I don't think I think that's reflective of sort of an older generation, a somewhat provincial sort of perspective on Husky football. Um, If anything, I think that that is the kind of group that is less interested in going to the Big Ten, like more focused on we want to have our little, like putting a fence around Washington, having a team that that we feel reflects the area. The getting mad about the 84 National Championship is silly. Like, I, I agree with that. If you go undefeated, I think then you can feel that you should have at least a share of a national title. But when you're trying to explain how this other team's schedule wasn't as tough, which it wasn't, like, it feels like you're trying to, you didn't control everything you could control. Like, the, the, the 91 team won every game that was lined up in front of it. Like, that's... I don't want to say like, hey, that that's a full national title because it's not. But that team, that team did everything it could. It's a better team than the '84 team. I don't care what anybody says. I did a story on on the '84 team uh, four years ago before they played BYU down there, and it, it was interesting, kind of their perspective on that. I think to a man, the guys I talked to felt like, oh yeah, we would have, we would have beat BYU easily. We were way better than them. Like we should have been voted number one, but there also was an attitude of like, you know what? We all knew that going down to USC, that was going to determine whether we could be national champs. We felt like we were, you know, before the season, they all, they put NT, uh, on, on, you know, national title on, on all their jackets and stuff. And like, that was a little thing among the team. Like they, they set as a goal, they knew they were good enough to go undefeated and compete for a national championship that year. And they felt like when they lost to USC, like, well, that's it. You know, we had to go undefeated. We didn't go undefeated. And that was our shot. And, you know, the Orange Bowl kind of fell in their lap a little bit where, was it South Carolina lost to Navy the last week of the season unexpectedly? Like, I think the Orange Bowl, I want to, I think I have this right. The Orange Bowl reps were like at that game, like just, it was, it was a formality it was going to be a done deal. South Carolina was going to get the bid and Navy stuns them the last week of the season and thrusts Washington back into the conversation. And so I think even being able to go to the orange bowl for that team was like a huge, it felt like a, like a huge bonus, you know, cause you're all you're thinking about is the Rose bowl as a PAC 10 team at that time, it's the Rose bowl or nothing else. Um, anything short of that is a disappointment. There's really no thought that like, well, you know, gosh, maybe we could go 10 and one and get one of the other big bowl games. So I think they saw it as like this, this incredible opportunity to go prove it against Oklahoma, a game that like not a lot of people were giving them a shot in. And all the debate was, well, if Oklahoma beats Washington in the orange bowl, could Oklahoma be voted number one over BYU? And you had, you had all these polls done of, of 
AP voters who said that, yes, they would vote Oklahoma number one if they won, but no, they wouldn't vote Washington number one if they somehow beat the Sooners. And so it was all, I, I, I say all that to say, like, I don't think the players from that team are necessarily as hung up on it. Um, I think they very firmly believe that they were the best team and, and certainly would have beaten BYU. But um, I didn't get the sense they felt like it was an, an all-time robbery, you know. Because uh, I, I, I think they've, you know, if you've played the game, you understand like how hard it is to go undefeated against any schedule. So you can think that you're good enough to beat that team to win undefeated against the easy schedule and also think like, well, you know, why, why shouldn't they be voted number one? You know, like what did they do? They didn't do, they, they literally didn't lose a game. Yeah. As for Ian's question about kind of how you get out of this, I, I would, I would say that the way to get out of this is to adopt an attitude at Washington of we play anyone anywhere, like kind of become the Boise state of the pac 12. Um, it's something I've thought about. A lot. I don't know how realistic it is because I think that Washington sees itself as as a school that can emulate the approach that other sort of blue stock programs have taken, and certainly like the way it schedules home and home, even if those schools back out of it, like Ohio State or Wisconsin, like that reflects that of where where they see themselves. But I, I would I would say that it it. For a long time, Washington fans have seen themselves as sort of the king of the Northwest kingdom, and that doesn't really jibe with the recent results, certainly with Oregon, but we've been slow as Washington fans to sort of accept or embrace that reality, and instead, and I'll like raise my hand, I'm chief among this, of to characterize Oregon's success as this sort of aberration in that pretty soon you'll return your uh, seats and tray tables to their upright and locked positions and we'll return to normalcy and continue to kick the hell out of the ducks. But if the, the way out of that is to sort of define yourself as the program that will go anywhere and play anyone and, and, and isn't, isn't looking to protect itself in any way. Um, again, I don't know how realistic that is, but there is a little bit of, I, I feel like, the borrowed traditions, the emphasis upon the setting, the sort of clamoring over not real accomplishments of the past. Like, is it the 1960 national championship that's totally mm-hmm. made up? Like, like that, that shouldn't be displayed. That, that's my own opinion. Um, would, be, would be a better approach for Washington to take going forward? I don't know how practical that is. I think about... I'm always resistant to like label sports fans as bad fans or like not good fans because it like at the end of the day, it's, it's entertainment and you know, everybody interacts with it the way that makes sense for them. Mm -hmm. I will say you look at like the way that Jake Browning was treated by a portion of the fan base, especially toward the end of his career. And you think, man, what you know what do you, what do you think you're entitled to for is from a, a standpoint of who Washington's starting quarterback is and how good he is if you think Jake Browning is so bad that like you're you're going to talk poorly of him on social media but you know who has the most of those type of fans the very best teams correct in college football 100% and it's a big reason why they're the very best teams in college football 
because they can rely on those fans to buy tickets and oh, that's interesting Christian engage on social media give money to the athletic department uh, give money to fire a coach give money to, to hire a coach um, like every if they're being honest every administrator in the Pac-12 will tell you that that's where the biggest gap is between Pac-12 schools and the the Blue Bloods the teams that regularly make the playoff and you know revenue is a big deal but it it all goes hand in hand right like why is the Pac-12 struggling to get a TV deal why are most of the remaining 10 Pac-12 brands quote unquote considered to be inferior to those in other conferences okay that's an interesting way to look at it i've always seen that the fan that boos Jake Browning. And it's not just Jake Browning. It happened with Damon Heward. It happened with Brock Heward as well. Um, Locker's different because I think everybody appreciated what Locker, that Locker was the one redeeming thing about the worst era of, of Husky football. That when you get those fans... That's a symptom of success. Like those type of fans are attracted by success, have their standards raised by success. And yes, you have more of them, but they're also more fickle and more prone to exaggeration. You're certainly right about it being an indicator, though, of sort of the, I don't know if you want to say financial health or the national profile of the program that allows you to sort of sort of hit at that level or, or bat at that level. I think some of the, some of the realities of college football right now do come into things you don't want to hear about, like geographic footprint and how spread out the Pac-12 is, and the the fact that there are more there aren't college football is the sport of the Southeast. Like it's just it's just not even close when you compare it to to how other people feel. Even the NFL, while NFL teams individually might be more popular than your average SEC teams, the collective enthusiasm for the SEC is greater than the collective enthusiasm for the NFL in that region of the country. And that's just not going to be the case on the West Coast for a variety of reasons. Some of them sports-related in terms of the number of different teams and the proliferation of baseball and some of it for cultural and even economic things of having people that have moved to the area in, in a city like Seattle that doesn't have as and you have a lot of transplants that come here and to San Francisco. Um, that's interesting, though, to think about it is because because I, I have I'll, I'll agree with you about there's not a I don't categorize fans as as good or bad. There's passionate and there's there's dispassionate. And then there's also like sort of the unique regional like, vagaries of each fan base. Um, yeah. There is a little bit of a deal with the devil, though, of to get the amount of support and financial backing. You look in the in the Big Ten, you have some major urban centers that, and that's the wealthiest conference. I don't think it's the most like the most devoutly followed. I think that's the SEC, but the Big Ten is the richest conference by far, and that's even before they added UCLA and USC. Yeah. I Washington is in a an interesting position where I don't know that there's another metro city 
that has multiple major pro sports teams in it in which the the college in town still is number one for as high of a percentage of people as Washington is. Mm-hmm. It's clearly number two behind the Seahawks. I think if the Mariners were really good year in, year out, instead of being the Mariners, <laughs> you'd, you'd have maybe more people saying that they're Mariners fans than... <laughs> But I don't know, like if you took a poll of everyone who cares enough about Seattle sports to say that they have a number one team, don't you think that Washington gets the second most, UW football in particular gets the second most votes among Seattle sports fans? Well, it's interesting because I worked I think at a, for a time they were number one yes, for, a, for a long time. Certainly in the 90s, they're number one. Um, I worked at a place that did a fair amount of research on this subject, and I think that research and focus groups can give you whatever answer you would want to be. The the guidance that we always got was that the Huskies were three. The Huskies it went it went Seahawks then Mariners then Huskies. But by that, but the one thing that I'll I'll say is that you have by far more people who, if their number one is Washington and then their number two is like the biggest gap, like you have a number of people who are devoted Washington Husky fans who are only like tangentially interested in the Seahawks and the Mariners. And most, I would say most Seahawks fans, there's a larger overlap with Mariner fans with Seahawks fans. Yeah. That makes that I think that makes sense. But like I and I, I think most people outside this region don't get that. I think they see Seahawks, Sounders, mm-hmm. Mariners, now Kraken, Storm, and think, you know, it, obviously the Sonics would be on that list. Maybe someday we'll be on that list too. And, and think, wow, like this is, you know, Seattle's not a, a huge, huge city, but it's a, it's a major sports city with major sports teams. And UW is the college team. And yeah, I don't know where that, I even heard, you know, I, through the grapevine, but like for, from folks at the athletic, when I first started, who I, I think didn't quite get that. And were like a little bit surprised to see the response from Husky fans to the athletic staffing the UW beat. And wow, like this is, you know, we're selling some subscriptions here. This is kind of, I wasn't, I wasn't anticipating that. And I think like, well, I was, you know, like I, I, cause I know how many people put Washington, you know, make UW football a priority relative to, and like there are other schools in, in major metro cities you know, University of Texas is in Austin, but Austin doesn't have any pro sports teams. Correct. You know, they're, they're, none of the colleges in the Dallas area are going to outshine, you know, obviously the Cowboys, that goes without saying, but, but even, even the, the Mavericks or their hockey team mm-hmm. or, so I, I it's, it's, it's a unique situation that way. What if SMU started cheating again? Well, if they joined the Pac-12, obviously their, <laughs> their profile would explode. As you're talking, I'm thinking, I think Seattle's what? Like varies between like 11 and market, market 11 and market 13. Um, cities, bigger cities or comparably sized cities with a larger college football following. LA's huge and you have USC. I would say that Washington's following, certainly in football, is larger than UCLA's. Um, other cities, Houston, like the Cougars 
the Cougars get some interest, but they're they're certainly not at the level of, of the University of Washington. New York, nobody gives a rip about college football, and even like somewhere like Boston doesn't really. Philly, Philly's more college basketball than it is college football. Mm-hmm. Like that's Army Navy's played there, and there's there's decent there's decent football fans in in Pennsylvania, but it's Penn State is is, is the main draw, and that's not that's not in Philadelphia. Miami, um, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, Miami is. Um, but it's interesting to look at. It's not, and even the Big Ten, as wealthy as it is, and as much as it draws on those huge Rust Belt cities, like most of those campuses are not located in those biggest cities. Like University of Wisconsin's in Madison. It's not in Milwaukee. Michigan State's in East Lansing. Michigan's in Ann Arbor. They're not in Detroit. So it's it's very interesting to see, and I think that that can be a challenge. The University of Washington following can get eclipsed because of that, and people don't think of it being centered in Seattle the way it is centered in Seattle. Bringing it back to Ian's question, I don't know that there's anything unique about Seattle sports fans that would have them view uh, through a negative lens Sean Alexander's career relative to, as Ian mentioned, Dan Wilson or or uh, Jake Locker. I, Dan, if if Dan Wilson has the career he has for any major league franchise, he's remembered fondly. Yeah, yes, because of who he was and kind of that steady supporting character on the greatest teams of that franchise's history. I mean, how many better players have worn a New York Yankees uniform than Derek Jeter? A lot, right? Like many. And yes. Not saying Derek Jeter is not a Hall of, Hall of Fame caliber player. Obviously, he is. He had a wonderful career. He was durable. He was dependable. He was the captain. He made clutch plays in the postseason and all this. But um, there's a reason that he is held on a higher pedestal than a lot of players in that franchise history who are way better than him. I will say this. When you brought up Jeter, all I can think is him diving first, face first into the first row to catch that fly ball against the Boston Red Sox and thinking Sean Alexander would never. (laughs) (laughs) Derek Jeter, Derek Jeter, tougher tougher than Sean Alexander. (laughs) Exactly. But that's, but you're, but Hey, and, and how, you know, Sean Alexander cut off that throw from the outfield, make a little flip. Does he have the wherewithal? (laughs) Oh, have I, I, I think I've told my favorite Sean Alexander story on the podcast before about the ESPN, the magazine cover. I don't think so. 2005. Uh, Sean's going to win the MVP. He's going to set the league scoring record. He has signed the franchise tag before the season, and everybody's kind of moved on from the stabbed in the back comments. And Tim Keown of ESPN, the magazine is doing a profile. I'm not sure if Sports Illustrated had already put him on the cover or not. Sean's going to win the MVP. Like, it's very clear. And he's going to be the first Seattle Seahawk to win that award. Only the second, I think, Seattle athlete. Griffey had won the baseball's MVP. And Sean tells Tim, the reporter, that he knows what the cover photo should be. And he should be sitting on Santa's chair. And there should be the MVP trophy on one arm of the chair, the Lombardi trophy on the other, and in front of the chair should be the five offensive linemen dressed as elves. (laughs) 
And the headline of ESPN, the magazine will be all I want for Christmas dot, dot, dot. <laughs> I'm going to have to look and see if Tim wrote that. I know that I, I know that I, I heard that very clearly and I think it's in the story. And all I could imagine is he's saying that is someone explaining to Steve Hutchinson that he needs to dress up like an elf so Sean Alexander can sit on a throne behind him holding the MVP and and the Lombardi trophy. Yikes. <laughs> there was nothing that crystallizes more clearly how Sean saw himself with regard to the people around him and the disconnect between because look, I'm someone who thinks that Sean Alexander's underrated. Like, I I think the way that people look at it and say anybody could gain those number of yards, like if you look at the run of yardage he had over a six-year window, if you're telling me that he was like an underachiever and that he was out of shape and anybody, like you're saying that he would have been the best NFL running back in history, like that that was his ability level because the numbers he put up are astounding. Like just, you you can't mess with them. You, you can't, like, he stayed healthy. He played, like, all of these different things. But the way he saw himself, he was the fourth or fifth most important person on that team. Hasselback was more important. Walter Jones was certainly more important. And the best player on the team, Hutchinson, was absolutely more important. And then you get into Sean or Daryl Jackson, like Sean or some of the other. So he's maybe four. And he clearly saw himself as the straw that stirred the drink. And it was completely out of touch with how everybody else saw him. Did we answer Ian's question? I feel like we kind of did. I came up with my play play anyone anywhere, become the feisty, the Gonzaga slash Boise State of college football. Yeah. I Nobody don't know. will do it though, right? Because you can't schedule tough non-conference like that anymore because you're trying to get into the playoff. I also just kind of think like it's inevitable that Sports fans will get worse uh, as social media continues to get worse. Yeah, like we're we're training, and there's been some stories written recently about how like oh, Gen Z isn't as into sports, and what are you know what are what are networks that paid all these billions of dollars for live sports going to do down the road when they're they're not getting the return on that investment because younger people don't want to watch it or whatever. Um, we are training young people to not consume any media that lasts for three hours. Yeah. Right. Like if you can package every baseball game into here, here's all the homers, extra base hits and like cool strikeouts or bad calls or diving catches. Like, well, why would I watch every pitch? Why would I sit here and watch two balls and a foul ball go by when I can just watch the cool stuff that happened? Or why would I, why would I pay money to attend a football game, and sit in the heat and through timeouts and have a you know have to fight lines to go to the bathroom and pay you know college football's been dealing with that for for years now and I don't know what the solution is there either. The solution, and this is spoken as a, as an increasingly old fogey, is to put down your phone. I'm reading a book called Stolen Focus right now, which is really about like the world, and it's not just America, the world's sort of attention crisis and that we're becoming worse at paying attention to things. And it has, it has negative impacts, both in terms of happiness and in terms of creativity. You got to put down the phone. 
And I've started that's doing that. It's not going to happen. Yeah. It might not for most people, but it will for me. Like I actually, and I've, I've started doing this, like where I'm not going to, I'm not going to live tweet during games. I'm going to sit there and watch things and I'm not going to, I'm not going to participate in that. And that might have a negative impact in terms of sort of profile and interaction. And maybe, maybe that is, will prove unsustainable, but I'm, I'm not going to be part of that ecosystem. The, the, the. I only care about what I see on the internet, and the only things that matter to me are things that I talk about on the internet. I think it's I think it's bad. We're, it's 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 the decline of of civilization as we know it, Christian. It is. I believe. I actually believe that. You're, you're maybe being a little sarcastic. Me, me, and Chris Peterson believe that. Um, I I've pulled back. You know, not just professionally either. You probably, if you follow me on Twitter, I think you probably see most of my tweets or links to my stories. Because yeah. that's the context that I want people to read the information that I've gathered within. You know, like I don't want to just throw out 140 character, 280 character, whatever the hell it is now on on a social media platform. I don't want to spend media day feeding Twitter with information. I want to spend it gathering, you know, reporting, talking to people, and then packaging it together. One behind a paywall that that, that folks have to to pay for because I just made this, you know, several hundred dollar investment to travel to an event and then spent, you know, whatever it was, eight hours there doing a, a job, uh, a, a, a specialized job. And now I've put together a story and that's where I want people to read everything. I don't want to have given it away, one, for free on Twitter, two, devoid of all other context around it. Like, if someone wants to read something and pull it out, screenshot the particular passage in a column and like make a big deal out of it, like fine. But it, like at least at least read the context it was presented in, you know. And to me, like that that's a big deal with social media for me. Like it robs it it uh, it gives it gives reporters a false sense of what really matters, um, what should be written about, how it should be written about, and uh, I think it it pulls us away from what the job's supposed to be, which is writing like a really interesting, coherent story. The medium determines the message in some cases or shapes how we think about it. Like I've tried to think about Twitter as a tool, right? Like it's an effective tool and Facebook and Instagram also, but I've, I've used mostly Twitter. It's an effective tool to communicate what you're doing. And it, it promotes and provides a door and access to it. But by participating and, and, and operating in Twitter, which I've learned to do, and to become successful at using it, it also changes the way you think about and disseminate information. And what Twitter does specifically is it rewards speed and certainty. Fast reactions in which you profess expertise in which you distill down what can be incredibly complex topics. Look, the Pac-12 broadcast, oh, we're not supposed to mention that. Any sort of broadcast deal <laughs> is incredibly complex that takes into a lot of account of the changing industry of television, the appeal of college football, the support of fan bases. To, to write about it on Twitter requires speed and brevity. And what jumps out is the level of certainty you have. 
it encourages you to be more knee-jerk and more certain, which I think is actually like does a disservice to most of the difficult issues in, in the world. Um, and so I've certainly tried to reel back both personally and professionally what I do on there. I'm not always successful about that because I, I, don't, I don't think that's a good way to view the world through. I, I, I don't because I think things are very complicated and do require what you said, context and sort of complete. And I don't want to work for Twitter. Like when you have a good tweet, the benefit mostly is derived, like is, is reaped by Twitter or X now. I guess it's called X. Yeah, uh, I refuse to call it X. <laughs> I just think of DMX every time. <laughs> what they really want? <laughs> what? God, I love DMX. <laughs> have you ever heard DMX sing Jingle Bells? Yeah, I have many times. <laughs> so yes, so great, <laughs> so absolutely fantastic. Or was it? Is it Jingle Bells or Rudolph? It's Rudolph. It's yeah. Rudolph. You're right. It is Rudolph. Uh, if you, you know, listen, if you must post some sort of opinion out in the world, a great place to do it is in a review on Apple podcasts of say who say pod, say who say pod. We're still sitting on 185 with a five star review. If you go ahead and click that fifth star, if you're so inclined, write about how great you think the podcast is. Uh, or you can listen, you can write about how average it is. If you don't like it, you can write your opinion, but just give us five stars. If you give us five stars, I will read, I'll read your negative review and think, okay, that's fine. That's fine. The rating's still high. The, the AI, uh, has not been trained to downgrade your rating based on the, the negativity of your words. So leave whatever review you want. If you give us five stars, we'll talk to you next week. Fall camp, baby.